Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. I want to welcome everybody. My name is Dr. Alan Klein, a director for the Center for Diagnosis and Treatment of Pericardial Diseases at the Cleveland Clinic. And it's my great honor to moderate this session. The title of the talk is Constrictive Pericarditis, Tales from the Thickened Pericardial Sac. And we see a lot of patients with constrictive pericarditis at the Cleveland Clinic. We have an exciting program where you hear about the spectrum of constrictive pericarditis from an inflammatory state to calcific constriction. You hear about the clinical path correlation, the path of physiology, um, how do they present clinically, and then we'll talk about imaging, including echo, CT, and MRI, and then we'll finally end up with radical pericardiectomy. I'll be presenting uh, two very interesting cases. So the first case is a 73-year-old male with a history of shortness of breath after VT ablation. So the story goes that he underwent VT ablation at an outside hospital, unfortunately had ramus injury that resulted in a pericardial effusion. There was no tamponade. This was uh, managed medically. No drainage was attempted. He developed some pericarditis after that and unfortunately reports ongoing shortness of breath, ascites, and lower extremity edema. He presents to us on steroids and colchicine, and past medical history as noted, VT, AFib, and OSA. His physical exam show uh, normal blood pressure and heart rate. JVD was elevated to the jaw, and he had two plus uh, edema peripherally. This is laboratory data that showed uh, mildly elevated inflammatory markers and lymphopenia. EKG showed sinus rhythm um, with PVCs. His chest X-ray was unremarkable. And this was his resting echocardiogram. So we can see in the parasternal long axis that he had a, a, a moderate circumferential pericardial effusion. You can see that also in the apical four chamber. In the apical four chamber, you can see that uh, diastolic bounds. Then the hepatic flows show diastolic reversal uh, with expiration. And then uh, in the strain pattern that I'm showing there, we could also see annulus reverses and abnormal global longitudinal strain. So he then underwent cardiac MRI, and um, that showed again the circumferential pericardial effusion. On that four chamber scene, you can see that diastolic um, bounds. And then in the T2 uh, stir image, um, there was an increased, slightly increased signal of T2 uh, stir, as well as uh, mild increased in delayed gadolinium enhancement. Um, so this was all suggestive of active inflammation. So the diagnosis here was transient effusive constriction, and he was managed medically. Um, he, we used the long steroid taper that was stopped five months after the initial visit, aspirin and colchicine, and on follow-up, his symptoms had resolved, and his lab had normalized. As you can see there, inflammatory markers were now normal. Case two was of a 39-year-old male, basketball player that presented with chest pain. He had a history of viral illness with sharp pleuritic chest pain and lower extremity edema. He was on furosemide and had a positive PPD. He was an immigrant from Russia, former smoker. Physical exam, again, elevated JVD, and inflammatory markers here were negative, but he had a positive quantiferin. This was his echo, resting echo. And again, here you can see just a posterior effusion. On the apical four chamber, you do see that respiratory um, shift of the interventricular septum. And then on the tissue uh, Doppler, 
uh, images down there, you can see that the medial tissue Doppler velocity was higher than the lateral. Again, annulus reverses. The CT scan showed a circumferential um, calcification of the pericardium. And this patient underwent radical pericardiectomy, um, as you can see over here. And then on pathology, you can actually see how calcified that pericardium was and uh, how thick that was. And so in conclusion, this patient had calcific TB pericarditis. This was managed with radical pericardiectomy, and he received TB therapy, and on follow-up was asymptomatic. Thank you. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes about constrictive pathophysiology and sort of set the stage for the talks that follow uh, in terms of how we think about the exam, the clinical presentation, and the role of imaging in the evaluation of these patients. Uh, so the first question is, you know, what do we know and what do we don't know? And, and I would say in constriction, there's still a lot we don't know in terms of the overall epidemiology. Um, we know acute pericarditis is fairly common. In general, I would say if you take all comers who've had acute pericarditis, those that go on to develop uh, chronic constriction um, is thankfully uncommon, uh, maybe one to 2%. Um, and that's data that comes from some of our uh, clinical trials. Uh, but to say that we don't have a lot of epidemiologic and, and, and registry data uh, to support that uh, as well. And the other thing is we don't really know how patients get here. Um, and I'll highlight two clinical scenarios um, that I think Dr. Hutt uh, touched upon as well um, that are, I think are most common for how these patients come to our clinic. Uh, so this is a patient I saw uh, recently. This was a, a consult for risk stratification uh, for an aortic aneurysm, and he's considered at high risk because of ascites. Um, he'd been followed with hepatology and had an extensive workup for cirrhosis, um, and no one really thought about the potential contribution of the heart. And I think that's an important point, is that uh, constriction often gets missed, and it really is, in my view, the most curable form or the only curable form of, of diastolic heart failure. So Dr. Lopresti will go into these details, and this is a patient in permanent atrial fibrillation, so a lot of the subtleties of the jugular venous waveform are, are not appreciated here, but clearly there's jugular venous distension. And the echocardiogram that we had, uh, as, as Dr. Hutt also showed, shows this prominent respirophasic septal shift. But when we go back, I had an outside echocardiogram from five years prior. Uh, and even at that time, you could see evidence of constrictive pathophysiology. So we really want to identify these patients early uh, before they present to us with evidence of end organ damage, which is often uh, related to liver dysfunction. So this is the second type of patient that, that will walk into our clinic. So this is a gentleman, middle-aged gentleman, who had presented with chest pain uh, to his local emergency department, um, had a CT scan that ruled out uh, pulmonary embolism, but was noted to have a, a, a very thickened pericardium, uh, but was not diagnosed with per pericarditis at the time. Uh, his symptoms progressed, continued to have chest pain. Uh, he returned uh, several weeks later. Now you can actually see a stent in the right coronary artery. So he was diagnosed with, with coronary disease, but that didn't improve his chest pain. And now he's developed heart failure with pleural effusions. And by the time he comes to see us, um, he has uh, uh, continued evidence of constrictive pathophysiology. Um, so this is a patient with incessant pericarditis where the diagnosis was missed, 
um, and would really benefit from early and intensive anti-inflammatory therapy. So when I, when I think of the patient with pericarditis, really two questions come to mind. The first is how severe is the inflammation and what are the hemodynamic consequences of that inflammation? And another important point is that constriction or constrictive pathophysiology is a hemodynamic uh, diagnosis. So as Alan said at the outset, this is really on a spectrum. We can have that first patient that comes in with chronic calcific pericarditis, sort of burnt out uh, without a lot of active inflammation. Or we can have that patient that comes in either with incessant pericarditis or as the case that Dr. Hutch showed with effusive constrictive pathophysiology. And in terms of the hemodynamic consequences, the main thing to remember is the concept of ventricular uh, interdependence. Uh, and this is really the hallmark feature of constriction. Uh, so Dr. Tan also mentioned this briefly, that in constriction, when the pericardium is constrained and there is a negative interthoracic pressure with inspiration, that pressure is not transmitted from the pulmonary veins to the left atrium. And so there's a decreased gradient from the left atrium to the left ventricle. So what happens? So this accentuates interventricular interaction. So with inspiration, the interventricular septum shifts to the right, and with expiration, it shifts back to the left. And Dr. Jealous will highlight you know, how we can assess for that uh, in depth with echocardiography, uh, in particular with our uh, Doppler assessments. But I think if you keep that concept in mind, you can then explain all of the findings we see in constriction. So the gold standard way to make this diagnosis is with um, a dual transducer study, uh, a catheter in the left ventricle and the right ventricle, and look at the systolic area index. And what we're looking at here is whether there is respiratory discordance or concordance. Uh, so concordance is the normal finding, the expected finding, whereas in constriction, what we see is discordance. So as you can see here, as the patient uh, inspires, the left ventricular uh, pressure decreases, whereas the right ventricular pressure either stays the same or increases, and we see the opposite on expiration. So it's this concept of discordance reflecting that accentuated interventricular interaction that is characteristic of uh, constriction. And we can look at the ratio in uh, inspiration and expiration and a cutoff that's often used is a systolic area index of 1.1. I think there's a couple of caveats here. Uh, the first is that uh, these studies were, were sort of classically used to distinguish constriction versus restriction. Um, so it's often as a case control study design, if you will. And I would say clinically, that's not often the case that we're trying to distinguish a patient from constrictive pericarditis from someone with restriction like a cardiac amyloid. Though where I do think it comes up clinically and is important to remember is in the, is in the context of radiation heart disease. Um, the second thing is there's obviously selection bias in that all these patients have severe enough disease to present uh, to the cath lab for evaluation. And the gold standard assessment uh, historically has been uh, surgical correlation, so have severe enough disease to also end up uh, in an operating room. Uh, just a point about how we actually do this, because this often comes up uh, from the cardiology fellows in terms of what beats do you pick to measure. So it's important to remember, again, with inspiration where the pressures are lower, you want to select the lowest early diastolic nadir and take the following beat as your beat for inspiration, whereas in expiration, you're looking at the highest early diastolic nadir and looking at the next beat 
um, for your expiration beat to look at your, in, uh, your index. And this was a patient who had a positive study with a systolic area index of 1.4. Okay, but echo really gives us more complete uh, hemodynamic information, and we'll go into more of those uh, details momentarily. But I'll give you a high-level overview of how I think uh, a helpful approach to assess these patients um, in, in sort of five easy steps, if you will. Uh, so the first thing I do is look at the interventricular septum. And the important point here is we're not just looking for the septal bounce or shudder. Uh, we're looking for the respirophasic septal shift uh, as the hallmark feature of constriction, uh, constrictive pathophysiology. The next thing I do is I look at the inferior vena cava. It should be plethoric. Um, and you should really question the diagnosis of constriction if you have a patient that has a normal caliber uh, collapsing uh, IVC. And then third, I look at the mitral inflow pattern. So constriction is characterized by accentuated early diastolic filling. Uh, so typically gives you a restrictive filling pattern with a big E and a little A. Um, and I, see, I would say that if you see a pattern of a small E wave and a big A wave, what we think of as a stage one type of filling pattern, that is also very unlikely to be a patient with constriction. Um, and then as Dr. Hutt showed, we look at the tissue Doppler velocities and constriction is often characterized by um, elevated septal E prime velocity. And finally, and I think this is the most um, technically challenging uh, in terms of acquiring the images, is looking at the hepatic vein Doppler profile. And we look for prominent expiratory flow reversal in the uh, hepatic veins. So remember, everything that we talked about that happens during inspiration shifts back to the left during expiration, and we can see that uh, flow reversal. So I think the key takeaways is to remember that in constrictive pericarditis, there is often a delay to, to diagnosis. So even in the the, the broader uh, spectrum of pericardial disease, it's not that common. This is really a diagnosis that, that we uh, should not miss and is curable. Um, and, and really the importance of assessing the degree of inflammation, and Dr. Kwan will touch upon our advanced imaging uh, to help better inform that, because we really see a spectrum of patients from incessant pericarditis to burnt out disease. And the hemodynamic diagnosis is characterized by ventricular interde interdependence. Uh, the gold standard for this assessment is the cardiac catheterization uh, and looking at the systolic area index. And echocardiography really remains the front line uh, for diagnosing, uh, for the diagnosis. And I would say often um, gives insights into some of the more subtle features of constriction uh, in patients who have less severe disease. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Jellis, for the introduction. In the next seven minutes, I'm going to be talking about the clinical presentation and physical findings of constrictive pericarditis. The etiology of constrictive pericarditis in developed countries has dramatically changed over the past decades, motivated by improvement in diagnostic techniques and the uptake of cardiac surgery and its impact on the pericardium. In this slide, I summarize results from three large cohort of patients from the Mayo Clinic from different decades where patients with constrictions were classified based on the underlying etiology. And they demonstrated how cases of idiopathic disease has dramatically decreased from 73 down to 33% in the 80s and 90s, and most recently down to 18% in the early 2000s. In terms of the identifiable causes, the top three are cardiac surgery, pericarditis, and radiation. But interestingly, most recent data show that cardiac surgery surpassed idiopathic etiology as the leading cause of constriction in developed countries. And these results are not very different from our experience here in the clinic. In this study from 2004, where patients with constrictive pericarditis 
that had idiopathic disease or secondary to vital pericarditis were classified as a single entity, and that accounted for 46% of the cases. But this result was closely followed by cardiac surgery, accounting for 37% of the cases, and then radiation. And this is important to keep in mind because it helps us to identify high-risk populations susceptible of developing the disease. The clinical presentation can be classified based on timeline as acute, subacute, and chronic. Chronic being patients with a more dramatic presentation and more classic findings of constriction in the settings of fibrotic and calcified pericardium. Keep in mind that also constriction can be a transient phenomenon, as we can often see in patients with effusive constriction where both phenotypes coexist. Patients have constriction in the settings of a tense pericardial effusion, and once the pericardial effusion is drained, patient manifests uh, constrictive symptoms and elevated radiator pressures that can be a transient or more chronic phenomena. And from the hemodynamic perspective, we can deal with patients with pure constriction or so-called mixed disease when there's a concomitant myopathic process or valvulopathy. But it's always important to recognize that the key hemodynamic finding is loss of pericardial compliance with reliance on elevated ventricular pressures to maintain cardiac filling and output, which eventually leads to primary diastolic heart failure. Unfortunately, in clinical practice, it's not that simple, and only two-thirds of the patients will manifest as congested heart failure. And the remaining third of the patients will have an atypical presentation, such as chest pain, abdominal symptoms, cardiac tamponade, atrial arrhythmias, or will be presenting to us via GI consult as part of the workup for cirrhotic liver disease. In terms of physical findings, the most common signs on examination are elevated JVP, virtually present in almost all patients, followed by peripheral edema, hyperomegaly, and less frequent uh, other signs that I've listed here for your information. Let's briefly refresh our knowledge about physical examination in patients with constriction. Remember that jugular venous pressure is an indirect uh, measurement of the right atrial pressure that can be elevated in cardiac and non-cardiac conditions. And among the cardiac conditions listed here, pericardial disease is one of them. When, when we analyze patients with JVP, it's important to recognize our anatomic as landmarks, and they've demonstrated here the presence of an engorged external and accessory external jugular veins, which they are not as accurate as the internal jugular vein for assessment of the radiator pressure. Remember that, you, that your IJ is in the middle clavicle and between the head of the external cladomastoid muscle and runs underneath this muscle all the way up to the ear lobes, and has this characteristic biphasic or multiphasic wave appearance visually, and it's not palpable. And the way to differentiate from the carotid stroke is that the carotid stroke is a single upslope and is palpable. Remember that maneuvers that increase your right atrial pressure, such as valsalva or hepatojugular reflux, will increase the engorgement of the neck veins and facilitate their analysis. Keep in mind that patients with constriction, up to 20% of the cases can have Kuzma-Ul sign, which is the paradoxical increase of the jugular venous pressure during inspiration. Another important factor to pay attention to is the jugular venous pulse waveform. And I'm gonna turn your attention over the X and Y descents. The X descent corresponds to a phenomenon of right atrial relaxation enhanced by ventricular contraction during systole. And the Y descent is a passive RV feeling during early diastole. And I'll be lying to you if I tell you that the recognition of the upsloping waves is something easy to do. However, in patients with constriction, is uh, possible to identify the descents as in this video is showing. Patients with constrictions can manifest a sharp and deep wide descent, which is called Frederick's sign, is nonspecific for constriction and also can be seen in patients with restricted cardiomyopathy and corresponds to a rapid and early uh, ventricular feeling during early diastole. 
And this is what corresponds to the restricted filling pattern on mitral inflow spectral Doppler with an E2A ratio more than two. and also corresponds to what we describe in the catheterization lab as the deep and plateau or square root sign. Also patients with constriction can have a sharp and deep X and Y descent is the so-called W or M sign. Ultimately, the right atrial pressures will transmit retrograde to the systemic veins and patients can manifest ascites requiring pericardiosynthesis or peripheral edema. The hallmark of auscultation is the pericardial knock. Pericardial knock is an additional third sound in early diastole that has a high pitch quality, occurs at the throat of the wide descent, and is due to the rapid deceleration of the ventricular filling reaching a premature plateau when the myocardium meets a non-compliant pericardium. I have two videos here, but I'm not, I believe the audio is just gonna play online for differentiating between the pericardial knot and the S3. And the main difference is that the pericardial knot has a high pitch quality as compared with a low pitch quality of the S3. And finally, just a few words about uh, pulses paradoxes. The paradox of the pulse refers that during inspiration, there's a drop in systolic blood pressure of more than 10 millimeters of mercury. And this is most commonly seen in patients with tamponade, but can be present in up to 20% of the patients with constriction. And as my colleagues have explained, it's secondary to a dissociation in between intrathoracic and intracardiac pressures due to the uh, isolation from the sick pericardium that will ultimately impair the transpulmonary gradient, the ventricular uh, um, filling of the left ventricle, and due to ventricular interdependence, the, the septum will ultimately bulge to the left impairing the stroke volumes and dropping the systolic blood pressure during inspiration. And this is based on all these phenomena of ventricular interdependence is what we look for echocardiographically when, when we do an end mode across the septum and we look for uh, septal bounds and posterior shift, also significant respirophasic changes of our mitral and tricuspid inflow. And it also corresponds to uh, the ventricular uh, systolic uh, discordance in between the LV and RV. So I'm gonna stop here with a few takeaways. Uh, remember that uh, it's important to recognize high-risk populations. Signs and symptoms in constriction may be subtle, and don't forget about the physical examination and fundamentals of medicine. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.